every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to a new week of Money Talk. This is Peter Lewis with one of Hong Kong's top 10 rated financial podcasts on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Google Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In the business and finance headlines for today, Monday the 19th of June, Beijing is planning major steps to revive the country's flagging economy, including the possibility of billions of dollars in new infrastructure spending and looser rules to encourage property investors to buy more homes. China State Council met on Friday and considered a batch of macroeconomic policies designed to expand effective demand, strengthen the real economy and diffuse risks in key areas. An account of the meeting by Xinhua showed China's cabinet as saying in response to the changing economic landscape, it's imperative to introduce policies that are more powerful. The Bank of Japan maintained its ultra-loose monetary stance at its June policy meeting, which concluded on Friday, despite increasing signs of a broadening in price pressures across the economy. In a widely expected decision, the bank kept overnight interest rates on hold at minus 0.1%. There were no changes to its yield curve control target. The BOJ said it would continue to allow 10-year bond yields to fluctuate by 50 basis points above or below its target yield of zero. Micron will invest just over 600 million US dollars over the next few years in its semiconductor packaging facility in the Chinese city of Xi'an, weeks after the US chipmaker was barred from supplying critical infrastructure in the country. Beijing banned certain companies deemed critical information infrastructure operators from buying products from the Idaho-based memory chip manufacturer after a probe found serious network security risks. Bloomberg reported Friday that Micron is said to be close to an agreement to commit at least 1 billion US dollars towards setting up a semiconductor packaging factory in India. An announcement could be made as soon as Prime Minister Narendra Modi visits the US later this week. On today's programme, I'm joined by Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Sam Favre, CEO at Mandarin Capital. With a view from mainland China is Brock Silvers, the CIO at Kyan Capital. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll also find my daily newsletter with plenty more business and finance information from across Asia. On Wall Street, U.S. stocks recorded their biggest weekly gain since March as investors hoped the Federal Reserve's aggressive campaign of interest rate rises would soon end. On Friday, the session ended with mild losses on a day with 4.2 trillion U.S. dollars in options contracts tied to stocks and indices maturing. The S&P 500 ended 0.4% lower Friday at 4,410 after oscillating between gains and losses, but was up 2.6% over the past five sessions, its biggest weekly gain since late March. The benchmark is now up more than 26% from its bear market low. The Nasdaq Composite dipped 0.7% to 13,690, held back as heavyweight technology stocks Apple and Microsoft retreated from record highs. The index gained 3.2% last week, that's the biggest advance since mid-March, and the Nasdaq is up 34% from its December 2022 low. The Dow slipped 109 points, or a third of a percent, to close at 34,299 for a weekly gain of 1.2%, its third positive week in a row. 
U.S. Treasury yields rose on Friday as investors considered the path ahead for interest rates and considered comments from two Federal Reserve officials who signaled potential further rate hikes. In guidance issued alongside the central bank's decision to keep rates unchanged last week, it indicated that rates may go another 50 basis points higher this year. The yield on two-year U.S. Treasury notes rose seven basis points to 4.72% on Friday. The yield on the benchmark 10-year added five basis points to 3.77%. The U.S. dollar index was 0.2% firmer Friday, mainly due to yen weakness after the Bank of Japan left monetary policy unchanged again. The yen fell 1.1% to 141.82. That's the lowest level in more than six months. The Chinese yuan had a volatile week, falling to 7.19 renminbi, the weakest level since November 2022, after the announcement of the PBOC's MLF cut. But it retraced those losses on the prospect of powerful fiscal stimulus from Beijing, ending the week unchanged at 7.12.5 in onshore markets. Asia-Pacific markets closed higher Friday. In Japan, stocks reversed earlier losses to end the day stronger, with the Nikkei 225 closing up 0.7% at a 33-year high of 33,706. Hong Kong stocks extended their gains Friday to a six-week high, with Beijing seen injecting more liquidity and promising powerful stimulus. The Hang Seng Index rose 1.1% to 20,040. That's the highest level since May the 8th. The benchmark saw its third weekly advance after a 3.4% rally over the five trading days. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index added 0.6% to 3,273. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. It's time to welcome our Monday morning guests, and we have with us this Monday and every Monday, Alex Wong, Director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Morning, Alex. Hi, morning, Peter. And also with us, Sam Favreau, who's Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital. Morning to you, Sam. Morning, Peter. Beijing is planning major steps to revive the country's flagging economy, including the possibility of billions of dollars in new infrastructure spending and looser rules to encourage property investors to buy more homes. China's State Council met on Friday and considered a batch of macroeconomic policies designed to expand effective demand, strengthen the real economy and diffuse risks in key areas. An account of the meeting, which was chaired by Premier Li Chang, released by state news agency Xinhua, said in response to the changing economic landscape, it's imperative to introduce policies that are more powerful. Policies that meet the necessary conditions should be promptly unveiled and implemented without delay. And the statement didn't say what those measures were or when the details would be released. The meeting attributed the faltering recovery to an increasingly complex external environment and slowdowns in global trade and investment. Alex, why are the state planners so concerned? After all, the the mainland economy is growing at 4.5%. Several investment banks are predicting around 5% full-year growth. That's not too bad, is it? I think the problem is uh, we are seeing a weakening uh, um, manufacturing uh, activities in China, and also we are seeing a very high unemployment rate, especially among the youth. Uh, And the consumption actually is also weaker than expected. So I think uh, at all funds, actually, uh, the, 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 the growth rate is uh, supported only by a few um, uh, key elements like infrastructure spending. And also I think uh, they probably 
are seeing weakish uh, weakish uh, property market, and all that probably all will, will will have a long term impact as well. So I think uh, overall, the even though we are seeing a a a high number in GDP growth, but uh, the quality of growth actually is is, uh, is not that good, and so also I think uh, the uh, the unemployment rate is a, really a concern for them. So th- this is, in effect, what economists call the output gap, the difference between the economy, what it's actually doing right now, and the potential output if it was operating at full capacity. The data we had last week suggests that maybe that output gap is getting quite big. Yeah, right. And I think uh, the problem is uh, uh, the, 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 the confidence among private sectors. And actually, they need it because uh, right now uh, we are seeing um, – uh, in AI propel um, uh, ex- ex- uh, growth uh, in other parts uh, of the world, and if China doesn't have that ca- that kind of uh, confidence to invest, I think uh, that probably would be a problem because the gap actually would widen further uh, if AI does uh, uh, boost the productivity in the other part of the world. Sam, what, what do you think? Do you, I mean, four and a half percent growth, not too bad, is it? Well, I agree with Alex. There's a problem of quality and also there's a problem of timing. A lot of growth was concentrated in the first quarter. Mm-hmm. Now, the real problem is I think you have conjunctural issues with the slowdown from the global economy in general following the tightening. And then you have massive structural issues in China where, you know, you had a crackdown on the private sector for years now uh, following ideological tightening as well. So I think to some point they are also um, getting the effects of that. We have a loss of confidence. You have population which, um, especially younger population, which struggle to find job and is not willing to take risks because the reward at the moment is very, very uh, negative. So there is a really, uh, I think there's a lot more to do than just macro investment type of policy, which is old recipe. They have to at some point change their their way on how they want the economy to be driven. But Beijing is teasing us, aren't they? They're, they're telling us they're planning what they call powerful stimulus, but then they're not actually telling us what this stimulus will be, when it's going to be implemented. Do you think this is going to be enough, what we heard on Friday, to, to calm markets, the promise that something is coming? I think uh, it will not help, help too much, because if you look at the RMB uh, and also um, the... the, 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 the um, Chinese uh, investors pulling out of uh, Hong Kong market on on the last two trading days, then I think uh, people probably reckon uh, the the stimulus would not be strong enough. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, what we do need is a is a boost in um, confidence among the private sector. So a monetary policy would not help much, and any measures on property market actually would not help much as well. So I think uh, the key is to address the lack of confidence in the private sector. Totally agree with Alex, plus also the lack of confidence for foreign investors that have been burned and they're not seeing any uh, actual structural changes. So I think it's going to be, you know, probably drive a bit of a liquidity um, re- liquidity rally and we already have some, seen some of it, boost a bit of short-term confidence, but that's not going to address the long-term issues. Hmm. Are they not telling us because maybe a lot of what they like to do is just not feasible at the moment? I mean, there's a mountain of debt. There's a lot of pressure on local governments because of that. There's no simple solutions anymore, are there, that are going to be quick and easy to implement? I think it is very difficult to to get effective policies in China right now because, uh, yeah, as you said, the debt actually is quite high, and the lack of confidence actually uh, is uh, very difficult to be, to be reversed. I think so. So so they probably do need to 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 get some um, effective tools. Uh, so right now they are not announcing. So hopefully, the market will not be too disappointed yet. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I also think, you know, a lot of these measures, I'm not sure if they're going to be able to be passed ideologically. I mean, if you want to stimulate demand, obviously you have to stimulate also the the earning salaries and everything, which is to some extent also contradictory what you're talking about, common prosperity and all this. So, as I said, there are a lot of issues which probably at the moment are, you know, uh, antagonizing between the ideological drive and the actual measures they could implement. Mm. And, the, and the Wall Street Journal, they were they were saying last week that maybe the centerpiece of this stimulus is going to be a trillion renminbi in special treasury bonds, which is going to pump up infrastructure investment. This is sort of reverting back to the old playbook, isn't it, which, uh, which China has done many times in the past. But it doesn't seem to me that that's going to be the answer this time, is it? Yeah, it's, it will not be because at, uh, we, we have... All- Already seen the the the, uh, the effects uh, in, during the last uh, ten years, and also uh, we are seeing a um, very negative PPI right now. So uh, that kind of boost in infrastructure spending actually probably would uh, would be more deflationary in, in in terms of the, the production price index. I think uh, overall it will not help much. Well, in practice, you have seen decreasing productivity gains for every dollar invested into infrastructure. So old tricks, but I don't think that's really what the economy needs at this stage. Is, is the economy slipping into deflation? I mean, we've got ze- almost zero consumer price inflation. We have got PPI is, is negative. Is, is that a real risk now for um, for China that it can almost become another Japan and just slip into um, deflation? Yeah, right. I think uh, because uh, it, I think so. Yes, and 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 the property market actually would would, would be the the, the drag mm. because we are seeing a very weak property market right now. And in that case, then all the, all this stimulus, just like we saw in Japan over the the decades, low interest rates, zero interest rates, it just doesn't help. It's it's like uh, pushing on a string. Yeah, I think uh, the, the 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 real solution is to let the private sectors uh, to 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 be active again. But right now, it is uh, a bit difficult to derive the confidence. Mm. Yeah, I mean the real problem, as you said, and Japan is a very good example for a very long t- period of time, high growth uh, and uh, you know allocation of capital in very very specific sectors like real estate, going over Asia population. We're seeing all these things in China at the moment, like thirty years later, and yeah, it's going to be a massive issue. And they need to start reallocating properly capital away from the old you know, sectors where they've been allocating traditionally, and that's what Japan has been very slow to do. And they're still facing the same problem, very high uh, debt on balance sheet plus aging population. So, I mean, Beijing's flogging a dead horse, isn't it? Because local governments anyway are spending on, on infrastructure. They, they spend a lot on infrastructure, but it hasn't really benefited the broader um, economy. It hasn't got people spending again. Yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, this is uh, the problem. And, and, and that problem actually would limit the, the, the choices as well. So the, the real thing is, I think, uh, is to boost confidence among public sector, especially in, in the AI era. Because right now, you can imagine after five years, probably the Western world would be more advanced in terms of technology. And the gap would be widened every day. So I think uh, uh, this is the real issue to address. Because if you look at China right now, probably they would be limited by uh, the semiconductor uh, 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 constraints. So I think uh, people probably would be quite bearish towards China investment because of this. How do we get household spending? There's been a lot of talk about that among economists, that really to boost the economy, um, we need to boost household income and, and hence household spending. How, how do they do that? Well, they need to bring back confidence. I mean, the consumers and those people, remember the consumers are people working and most of them in the private sector. So they need to have confidence they can invest in the future in their business and making sure they can make money and start spending again. Mm. So 
said, it's a fundamental shift they need to do from what is currently happening, which is a more and more centralized economy driven to the top. If people feel there cannot be uh, any kind of entrepreneurship, then they're going to uh, you know, sit back and do nothing, which to some extent is what you're seeing with the younger population. So it's really a shift which has to happen to bring back this confidence back and people start consuming again. Do you, do you think consumption vouchers are on the cards? We've sort of talked about it in the past, haven't we? Do you think maybe this is a serious policy option for, for Beijing now, to, which is one of the reasons why they can't say anything, because this is obviously going to take a while to implement and, and sort out. But the voucher actually only help uh, very, for a very short period of time. Mm. So it's like Hong Kong. You, you just get a boost uh, for, to, for a quarter probably, and then, and then no use. I don't think consumption is, is vouchers really the solution because there's a high saving rate anyway in China. So if they want to spend, people can spend. Mm. So the problem is how do you entice them to spend? So as I say, it's all about confidence. So it's not that they haven't got the money already. The, the, there is money there. They just don't want to spend it. Exactly. And, and what about these policy interest rate cuts that, that we've seen um, over the past week or so, the reverse repo cuts, the MLF cuts? Um, what do you think is going to be the impact of that, if anything? The impact is not too much because uh, you're not cutting the rate uh, very aggressively. You're talking about only uh, 0.1.2 percentage points, so it won't really help much. And probably it would help a little bit towards the bank sentiments because uh, probably they, 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 they would pay less and, 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 and get a wider margin, but I don't think uh, the, the overall impact won't be that much. I mean, so far the impact is small because the cuts are small. Now the problem is, uh, is your credit, obviously, where you channel the credit. So I think there's two components. Then you've got real estate. But again, I think there's overstretching of investment from the private sector in real estate. So it's a tricky mm -hmm. one. And then whether the uh, actual cuts uh, channeled to the private sector has always been a big problem in China, how those uh, private companies have access to credit. So at this stage, it's too small to really uh, you know, have a massive impact. If it goes down uh, even a bit more, then let's see what the impact is. But I think it's still going to be... Uh, not marginal, but that's not going to be enough. Mm. So but maybe then they're moving towards a coordinated fiscal and, and monetary policy response. That's what, the, that's what we're going to see. But is there a, a sort of a big bazooka they can roll out here that's going to that's help? I think those are old tricks. So mm. uh, the, the real thing is the confidence. So you need to, to, to boost the confidence, uh, not, not using the old tricks, I think. Let me ask you about a couple of things from the data that stood out last week. We had that uh, the economic activity data. First of all, the youth unemployment rate. It's now, for China's 16 to 24-year-old age group, it's at a new record high, 20.8% in May. It was up from 20.4% in, in April. Presumably, this is one of the key issues, isn't it, that they've got to, to deal with, because this segment of the population accounts for about 20% of consumption in China. If they can find a way of dealing with this, that would give the economic recovery a sizable boost, wouldn't it? Yeah, but that's, I think it's even worse than this because you already have a declining or even stabilizing you know, working population. So I've got all these people aging and leaving the workforce and they can't even find replacement for these, uh, for these young people. The question is, where are they going to get employed in which sector? So mm -hmm. I said, until they have solutions, I agree. I mean, it's, it's the primary problem is to find solutions for these, uh, for these kids. But to be employed in what? You need to give them hope and something to to work for at this stage they have nothing so and, and presumably the sectors that they do traditionally go into like technology there's been a crackdown they a lot of, a lot of graduates will go to the online education sector which virtually got closed down overnight so that, that presumably has taken a, a, a big chunk of potential jobs um, away from them 
Yeah, even property sales probably would 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 would, would decrease a lot as well. <laughs> so we are talking about a lot of loss uh, drops uh, in several sectors. So this is very difficult. And, and I think that the the another point is that the the, the government uh, the, the the families actually are, are, are okay enough uh, to support the kids. So that's why they are not in uh, urgent need to 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 search for jobs. And probably we are seeing a mismatch of uh, skill sets uh, right now because if you. If you want to work for the service industry, actually, I think, don't think that that would be too difficult. But they don't want to; that those kids would not want to go into that kind of uh, hard jobs. I think. Mm. But that's also a problem for the overall industry. If people are not willing to, you know, to work hard or take risks because it's easy life, then you know, at some point, a, there's a problem as well. Yes. Ultimately, <laughs> in any country, that would be the case. Yeah, that's agree. What about those retail sales numbers? Twelve point seven percent growth, a bit lower than the thirteen point six percent we saw in. Uh, sorry, lower than the thirteen point six percent estimates, but much lower than what we saw in April. If you do seasonally adjust this now, month on month, retail sales. Uh, are falling so presumably this is just another sign that of the business cycle which is sort of coming to a late end people just don't want to spend at the moment until perhaps they've got better job security yeah right i think they need confidence to spend and also i think uh, the habits actually are changing so uh people are spending less and because if you the the the, the real cool thing is to post some uh, cool cool pictures on on your instagram or or wechat so i think uh, that is not costing too much money <laughs> and, and what about investment? Investment in the property sector, the number that stood out there, it fell by 7.2% in the first five months of the year. We thought earlier on in the year that maybe the property sector was stabilising, but you see this latest data, it seems to be accelerating again to the uh, to the downside. And it also suggests that despite the government investing, private companies are, are not investing. They're, they're really limiting their overall um, investment. Whichever way you look at the property investment, it seems that there is all the time that there was a bubble in the sector. So it's still not completely deflated. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is going to be a drag for a very long time. I think it's good to look at Japan, what happened. Ex- exactly the similarities are actually quite troubling between China and Japan with a 20-year, 25-year gap. So you could see this uh, drag on real estate for another 5 to 10 years. Yeah, same. I agree, yeah. Well, let's talk about Japan. The Bank of Japan maintained its ultra-loose monetary stance at its June policy meeting, which ended on Friday. Despite increasing signs of a broadening in price pressures across the economy in a widely expected decision, the bank kept overnight interest rates on hold at minus 0.1%. There were no changes to its yield curve control target. The BOJ said it would continue to allow 10-year bonds to fluctuate by 50 basis points above or below its target yield of zero. And that decision on the YCC received a unanimous vote from the policymakers there. Um, first quarter growth in Japan revised sl- sharply higher to 2.7%. Core inflation now um, at 3.4%. Why on earth is the Bank of Japan maintaining negative interest rates? They're, they're clearly no longer needed, are they? Yeah, but I think uh, right now Japan is a very hot uh, uh, hot place to be in, in, in the investment world. And and this uh, policy actually is helping that. I think that this is helping Japan because right now we are seeing capital info in Japan and actually, Japanese companies are, are, are probably will be more aggressive in 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 in, in doing the the, the the investments. So I think uh, this is helping. So that, that's why they want to uh, keep this kind of uh, monetary policy stable. I think they actually become they haven't really seen what's happening, and I think the Japanese have been probably completely traumatized by the deflation. So they're very uh, careful of changing policies, but I think every point everything points 
to Japan from very, very inflationary pressure. You've got investments going to Japan. You've got domestic inflation pressure. And I think uh, people have underlooked Japan as the potential big winner of, uh, you know, this shift away from China because a lot of the high techs are actually not moving to Vietnam, but they're moving back to Japan because you have a skilled population and you have the infrastructure. So I think the inflation pressure is building up in Japan, but it will take time for the Japanese central bank to realize that because they've been used of 30 years of deflation. Mm. And wages are going up now as well, isn't it? That's not something that we're used to seeing in Japan. Everything. Food is going up. I mean, you've seen the normal food in Japan has gone up 10 to 15%. Uh, Everything is going up. So how long could they maintain this status quo? I mean, could they go on for years like this? I mean, Governor Uedu has got a five-year term. I mean, if there's no, if there's no sign now of trying to um, get back to a normalised monetary policy, when? When, when, when are they going to do it? I think uh, we need to see a pickup in, in, in the inflation rate uh, in Japan, and then they, they would do it. But I don't think right now probably they would just tolerate so 3.4% is not enough for them. They want more inflation than that. I think the market will dictate it. I think look at the yen. If the yen reaches a certain amount of level, I reckon 150, they will start to do something. And they will. And that actually could come back, uh, could come earlier than later. It's been sliding. I think it will accelerate because there's such a massive differential gap at the moment that uh, you could see a massive, uh, a massive move on currency. And we're seeing it. I mean... You see what's happening. I think currency is probably the, one of the most interesting investments at the moment. Well, the yen is at a six-month low now. It's at 142. It's at a 15-year low um, against the euro. So presumably this is the casualty, if you want to look at it that way, of, of the Bank of Japan's monetary policy. And it's going to continue as long as the Bank of Japan sticks with this ultra-loose policy. Yeah, of course. I think uh, there's a chance to go to 150, yeah. And that's the level at which the Bank of Japan tends to intervene, isn't it, to try and sort of support the currency? Yeah, and I think they might have to do it earlier because that was when inflation pressure was low. But obviously, every percent in the yen is also adding to inflation pressure. So, look, I mean, keeping an eye on the yen will give you a very good indication, I think, where they're going to start intervening. Are you bullish, Alex, on the the Japanese stock market? It's um, above 33,000, isn't it? It's sort of at the highest level now since July uh, 1990. Yeah, of course. uh, Right now, it is the hottest place to be. So uh, we are riding with the trend. But uh, we are getting selective. I think uh, uh, several, actually, not some Japanese uh, stock sector are still cheap. So uh, there's okay to own, but uh, not everything. I think you need to be selective in Japan right now because the rise actually has been quite parabolic. And so do you follow Warren Buffett and go for things like the trading houses? Uh, uh, the, because that's obviously been a big spur to the markets, hasn't it? Warren Buffett investing there. Actually, we are picking more on those uh, manufacturing uh, companies because they are being overlooked and, and they probably would, would be the beneficiaries, as SSM suggests uh, right, uh, right now. So I think uh, the manufacturing sector actually is more, more interesting because if you follow up on Buffett, actually, they, 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 the, the, those stocks rose too sharply over the last month. Sam, is it a market that you like, the Japanese equity market? After so many years of false starts, isn't it, over, over the years, we thought there was going to be you know, renewed interest in Japan and it's all fizzled out very quickly. It does feel like it's different this time. Well, I think it's performed reasonably well. If you look at the last 10 years, it certainly has performed better than Hong Kong or China. So, again, it depends on which currency you're looking at the performance. In yen terms, it certainly is going to perform. In US dollar terms, I think we're going to see a massive slide. Uh, but there's all the ingredients are there in Japan for having a revived economy over at least the medium term for the next two to five years. So I think the cycle is definitely positive. But I would definitely would like to see some stabilization of the currency for, um, you know, 
I would say, long-term investment because that's going to be quite key. How much is this name and shame campaign that the Tokyo Stock Exchange has been doing um, helped? They're, they're, they're talking about companies that have a book value below one have to take steps to try and boost their book value. So that includes things like buybacks, uh, dividend hikes. How much has that been a support, this sort of like new type of um, sort of focus on shareholder returns? It's helping, of, of course. And and I think uh, people are uh, also uh, happy that uh, we are getting more activists coming into Japan. Mm. Actually, we are seeing um, uh, better governance uh, among Japanese companies. So I think that's already uh, that's already a catalyst. And some some companies have come very close, some high profile companies, to losing their chairman or their or their CEO because of these activist shareholders. Well, at least I think uh, people are, are are okay with that, and and they think uh, they probably will be more aggressive and and in doing their business and and doing better jobs. I'm more skeptical about the long term on this. Uh, we've seen that before activism in Japan. There's been very, very few successful cases, even of uh, foreign uh, foreign management uh, running, you know, uh, Japanese companies. Uh, this certainly has an effect on, on the on the announcement. Now, whether there will be real changes over the medium term, I think in Asia the copper, the the culture of shareholder value is not really there. So let's see. Uh, I'm quite skeptical on the medium term. Okay, let's turn and get your thoughts on a couple of other markets. First of all, the uh, the, the U.S. Um, the S&P 500, it was lower Friday, but up um, over the week, had its biggest weekly gains um, since late March. And it's now rebounded uh, from its, uh, f- from its uh, October low uh, by about 26%. The NASDAQ is up 34% now uh, from its lows there. I think that was up about uh, se- uh, the eighth straight weekly gain now for the Nasdaq. I mean, it seems to be broadening out, if anything, doesn't it? This this rally in U.S. stocks. There seems to be more interest, more money going into the market. Yeah, right. Right now, yes. Uh, this is a AI theme market right now because if you look at other indicators like monetary policies and and other things and money money base, then probably you will not be too too bullish. But I think uh, <coughs> people are looking ahead because of the AR breakthrough uh, happened in the last few months. So that's why we are getting a more bullish outlook for the overall market. Actually, more companies are mentioning AI right now. So uh, like Kroger, actually, they mentioned a lot uh, during the announcement. So uh, this is uh, getting more interest for, for those uh, traditional industries because they think uh, AI probably would help them as well. And Adobe actually has been the very astonishing uh, examples right, uh, during the last week. Mm. Yeah, because because people think that the AI actually would 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 help uh, other companies uh, beside uh, Apple, Nvidia, and Microsoft. Probably, they they are they are trying to pick uh, some more AI winners among other sectors. But when you see things like the uh, the National Association of Active Investment Managers, their exposure index to U.S. equities hit the highest level since the end of 2021. Is is this where maybe warning bells start to ring when everyone's starting to go all in into into the markets? This is where you get the risk of a big correction. Of course, when the price is higher, your risk will be higher. So I think that you will be <coughs> you will be facing higher risk. But I think that the overall. Uh, appetite for U.S. stocks will be still still uh, bigger than other markets because, I, as I've said, I think uh, right now people are looking ahead uh, probably in the five or ten years horizon because of the AI breakthrough and probably the, the winners would be those uh, AI, uh, tech giants in the U.S. I think the market is also supported by the end of the year tightening, so you have brought support on the market. Um, so that is driving people to go back into equity. Some of these uh, value managers definitely coming back. 
Now, I agree there is probably a bit of too much uh, hype on some of these sectors. But at the end of the day, at the moment, if you look at countries where you really want to invest globally and themes of innovation, I guess you have to go to the U.S. There is not really that much of uh, interest in uh, you know, in Europe and obviously in Asia, it's very, very uh, tricky to invest at the moment. So I guess the, the big allocators are in the U.S. for a reason. And I think there is a risk of the downside, uh, limited downside, because we need to see the earnings um, impact of this tightening. But uh, since the market, people at the moment are happy to uh, still allocate more money. Mm. Should you be looking to lock in these high treasury yields? You can get 4.7%, 4.72% now on a two-year treasury note, much better than the, the, the dividend yield um, on the S&P 500. And presumably, um, there's an opportunity here. And also, this is the risk to stocks, isn't it, as, as these yields continue going higher? Yeah, I think uh, this is okay to relocate some, um, some monies into the bond market because uh, probably people think uh, the interest rate will be picking soon. So uh, and also probably China would export uh, the deflation soon as well. So I think uh, it is okay to relocate some uh, into the bond. It it would make sense, but it seems that you know people are not used to that much bond investing and the old habit of buying uh, buying uh, growth stocks uh, die hard. So <laughs> okay, well, what about Hong Kong? Hong Kong's at a six-week high um, on hopes of this uh, powerful stimulus coming along. The Hang Seng rose to the highest level since May the 8th. It's seen its third weekly advance now, 3.4% rally uh, last week. The tech index surged 7.6% over the week. What's your thoughts on the local market? Uh, I would assume the Chinese investors actually are smarter. So they are pulling out of money uh, at the highs. So I think uh, probably we are, we are very close to a near-term top. A lot of it's been liquidity-driven, so I think it's always uh, by the rumour, sell the fact. So yeah, sell the fact. Mm. Did the Fed do the last right thing, by the way, last week in uh, in keeping rates on hold? Because we've now got this interesting policy divergence, haven't we? The Bank of Ch- uh, the Bank of China, People's Bank of China, cutting the Fed and the Bank of Japan on hold. The European Central Bank raising rates. Yeah, I think uh, it's okay because uh, you are you are always data dependent, so you can see and and also the commodity market actually are, are climb right now, so they probably can can take uh, one more more data to into consideration. I think they're at a level as well where they can decide whether they need to to tighten even more or they need to start cutting rates. So, you know, they started late, but the management of the the tightening for the year and a half has been pretty decent by the Fed. So, and then to some extent they'll be also listening to the market. So they've been they've been fairly good on that basis. What is going to be interesting is what the European Central Bank is going to be because Euro could be the big winner over the next uh, the next six months to a year in terms of currency. Okay, well, thank you for your thoughts this morning. That's Sam Favre, who's Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital. Alex Wong, Director of Alex K Y Wong Asset Management. I'm joined now by Brock Silvers, who is Chief Investment Officer at Kyan Capital. Morning, Brock. Good morning. Happy Monday. Thank you. Happy Monday to you too. Um, a lot of talk on Friday from uh, the State Council meeting about stimulus to try and revive um, the flagging economy. They're talking about possibly billions of dollars in new infrastructure spending and new looser rules to encourage property investors to buy more homes. The, uh, the, the readout of the State Council meeting was talking about powerful stimulus or policies that are more powerful. Um, let me ask you, first of all, Brock, why are people so concerned about the Chinese economy, which has been the first quarter grew at four and a half percent. Yeah, look, last week's data were certainly not uh, were certainly not supportive, right? We saw a seven percent plus drop in property investment uh, so far this year, cumulative. 
Um, youth unemployment has a, is a record high and is probably higher still in reality. Um, retail sales disappointed, exports were down. There's little doubt that the post-COVID recovery was both limited and is now stalling. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a worry. But look, it shouldn't surprise any Money Talk listeners. I've been pounding away on that topic for, for months now. The recovery to me has always seemed more hopeful, if not even a bit manipulative. So I'd be looking now at deflation as more of a concern than than sort of a, an economic boom. So is is that a real worry? Because if consumer price inflation, it's virtually zero now, isn't it? On the on the mainland, and the producer price index that, is right. negative; it's sliding. Um, so is deflation now uh, maybe Japanese style deflation? Is that a real concern now for the mainland economy? Yeah, it, it, it certainly is. Um, and the government seems uh, increasingly a bit bewildered, a bit bereft of ideas. Um, you know, the, the first step reaction is always the same. It's always for someone like Lee Chong to reassure markets that the government strongly supports economic growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, but that's like coming out in favor of sunshine. Um, it's, uh, you know, they're trying to create to coerce an emotional market into a positive response before they've actually done anything to warrant that response. Um, so it's a bit aggravating. I would say the market should not give Lee Chung the benefit of the doubt until we until we see the until we see the reality of his response. I mean, that's the strange thing about Friday, isn't it? It's almost as if Beijing is teasing us here. They, they say they're planning powerful stimulus, but then don't actually tell us what that stimulus is going to be or, or when it's going to be implemented. But presumably they hope this is all going to be enough to calm the markets, this promise that something is coming. And uh, I feel as if I'm being played for a fool a bit. Um, <laughs> what, what I would say is that, look, if we just talk about the, the reactions we've seen, the PBOC rate cuts we just saw were a bit laughable. Look, completely symbolic at 10 basis points. No one really thinks a 10 basis point cut is the answer. Um, but but look, the current economic problems just aren't a matter of liquidity. It's not high rates that are strangling growth. The problems are straightforward. The prior real estate profit model, which was perhaps a third of GDP, is simply busted and isn't returning, and there's no answer for how to replace that activity. The export-driven model, which has done so well for so long, is increasingly threatened by geopolitical stress. You know, whether we call it decoupling, de-risking, whatever we want, it's still deprofiting for China, Inc. And finally, let's just say that LGFV finances are a total mess. The LGFVs are basically insolvent, and they can no longer drive um, infraspending as a means to boost the economy. So that longstanding option, I think, is no longer available. None of these things are going to be impacted by minor rate cuts. And I think investors are just uh, starting to turn away a bit. So if you take those out, if, if you take out the property sector, which is, as you say, a major, has been a major pillar of the economy, if exports are, are slowing, um, it leaves the consumer, doesn't it? But it looks like um, you look at those retail sales numbers, if you seasonally adjust them on a monthly basis, they're actually declining now. So it suggests that that's also running into problems as well. And, and the consumer really, it's an, it's an issue of confidence, isn't it? It is, and Chinese consumers are, are, are smart, and they know that there's some risk in today's environment, and they're preparing for it. Now, some of the rumored responses that, that we've heard are coming down the pike simply don't really address those core issues. It's, it's more rate cuts, which I'm just not convinced are the answer, 
It's a rumored $140 billion infrastructure slush fund to be centrally directed for local projects. You know, good Lord, that doesn't seem like the answer. It may spare the LGFEs, but it, but it certainly won't get to the heart of things. Mm. What it, it, If I were, you know, ruler for a day, the answer would be restructure and recapitalize real estate. That's going to happen anyway. It's just a matter of when and how. We've got to reduce debt throughout the government. We have to relax international tensions so as to revitalize exports and reestablish confidence in basic investability. Now, that would produce a shorter period of lower growth, but then a longer period of higher growth. The thing is, though, that's a totally politically unfeasible response, which is why I'm not the ruler on any given day, and it's not the answer. So instead, I, I think we'll see lower rates, more debt, unnecessary infrastructure, and more decoupling, which is going to lead to another kind of disappointing markets period with, I think, really high volatility. And those things that you mention are all difficult to implement. They're not the sort of thing you can just announce in one policy statement, are they? They're going to take time to organize, um, time to implement as well. That, that's right. And a serious commitment from very high-ranking authorities, mm. which we have no reason to think that that's there right now. There are other priorities. Now, that, that's above my pay grade, right? They can set whatever priorities they want, but I don't see the priorities being set that would enable this economy to do the things that I think need to be done. So Premier Chang, he doesn't have it within his gift, really, to, to, to come up with the policies to, to really stimulate demand and, and boost confidence. Which is now, for right now at least, one of the one of the easiest uh, routes he can take is to simply reassure everyone that he's very supportive of markets and there will be plans to you know follow up on that idea. But how how well, long? Okay, but I'll keep my powder dry until I know more. How long do you think, though, investors uh, are going to be um, uh, seduced by that? This promise of more stimulus, the promise of, you know, infrastructure spending that we've seen before. Is this going to be enough to calm the markets, do you think? I I'm not sure why it ever worked in the past. Maybe I'm just a more skeptical investor than than many of my peers, but I'm not sure why it's worked up till now. So I certainly don't understand why it would work in today's circumstance as well. I mean, the Hang Seng, it's at a three-week high. Um, it's sort of rebounded a bit off of its lows, on mainly on the hope of this um, stimulus and, and some policies um, sort of coming out of Beijing. But it does make you wonder, doesn't it, the longer it takes to actually hear a concrete uh, policy, how long the market can hold up. I just think that authorities really want to take a wait and see stance uh, to see where, you know, how the recovery is really going to play out ultimately before they commit to something that may be both financially and politically costly. Mm. Um, but that wait and see response is not, you know, will not boost markets, not the way a declaration of undying fidelity and support will. I also wonder if maybe if they revert to the old playbook, which the Wall Street Journal was sort of indicating that there's going to be this sort of one trillion RMB in special treasury bonds to try and pump up infrastructure investments. Um, it's not as if the local authorities aren't spending a lot already. They they are, aren't they, on, on infrastructure? Um, is this going to be a disappointment if that turns out to be the policy? And um, we've seen that all before, haven't we? Well, I think it'll be it, 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 it would likely be very successful in terms of boosting market support initially. 
But I would think that it will be tremendously unsuccessful in its medium to longer term goals. I can't imagine anything less beneficial right now than to have Beijing start dictating local infrastructure project spending uh, as a means to boost the economy. I would rather they took that capital and that firepower and political will and restructured the real estate sector, which Mm. is fundamentally bankrupt and sorely needs that sort of attention. Mm. And that's about 30% of the economy, if you look at all the ancillary things around it um, as well. That, that's right. If we, if we write that off for the next year, where is that, how is that economic activity going to be replaced? Mm. I have no idea, and neither does anyone else. Mm. What what about the consumer? There's been a lot of talk about boosting consumption, and the way to do that is to boost household incomes so that people have more money to spend. But I'm wondering, is that that also um, slightly misses the point? Because households do have savings, don't they? They've been actually building up their savings. It's just that they don't want to spend them at the moment. Yes. Look, again, it is is not a liquidity issue. And you also can't um you can't address it from a tax perspective as you might in the u.s in that most chinese individuals aren't paying significant tax anyway um so how do how do you boost consumer spending well it's not easy and that's why we've been talking about it without great results for quite a few quite a few economic periods now are consumption vouchers on the cards do you think there has been murmurings about that yeah look there, there have been, and I think that uh, that shows the sort of desperation to reactivate the consumer sector. I don't know that anything has been decided yet. You know, the economy is not doing well, but it's also not doing so poorly right now that they would have to take those sorts of extreme measures. Mm. That would be costly, and no one is really sure if that would really solve, get to the heart of the problem. I suppose the one piece of data that really stood out last week from the the activity data that we saw, the youth unemployment rate, the the jobless rate now among the 16 to 24-year-old age group, it's at a record high of 20.8%. Presumably, this is a huge problem, isn't it? And this is something that has to be addressed because this is a big drag on the economy. These are people who account for about a fifth of consumption in China. It's a huge problem, and I would say that the 21% figure probably undershoots it, mm-hmm. uh, is, is my right. guess. I would bet that the real number is higher, but, but even at 21%, it's a, it's a massive problem. And it's not just a problem today in that it's a drag on economic activity, but think about it, what it, think about what it probably means for tomorrow's economy that, um, that that core group of people, as it grows into adulthood, um, it, it is simply missing out on a formative stage of its development. Mm-hmm. It, it's not good for today, and it's not good for tomorrow. It also carries some political stability risk, which is, I'm sure, uh, significantly important to uh, to the authorities in Beijing. So what can the government do about that? Because this is a structural issue, isn't it? And it's also linked to the demographics of the country as well. Yeah, look, the only way you're really going to solve that youth unemployment problem is by increasing actual growth uh, within the economy. And, and so far, again, growth, economic growth doesn't seem to be the priority. There are other larger, more political issues that have taken priority. If, um, 
you know, if, if we went through my list and restructured real estate and reduced debt and relaxed international uh, tensions and um, offered greater reassurances of investability to global markets, those things would produce growth, which would reduce youth unemployment. But politically, that's just it, it's a non-starter. Brock, it's always a pleasure to hear your thoughts. Thank you very much indeed. Yes, thank you. That's Brock Silvers, who is Chief Investment Officer at Kion Capital. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves on my daily newsletter. Take a look at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back with another show tomorrow. Joining me then will be Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, David Roche, President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Woods. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.